Earlier we read from Revelation chapter 4, where God on his throne, you'll have noticed, is declared to be holy, holy, holy. We were told that day and night, the living creatures around the throne never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that vision of God's throne room matches a much earlier vision that was given to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet says, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And Isaiah too hears the creatures around the throne calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. So the Bible presents God as three times holy. But what does holy even mean? Well, really, it's a word that belongs to God. In the Bible, other things can be referred to as holy, but only because they are set apart for God's own use. People and things can be called holy because of their relation to God. He is the one who is holy. People or things might share in his holiness to some extent, but holiness belongs to him. Of course, that hasn't really answered our question about what it means for God to be holy. So we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that gives us a sense of what it means. The passage is Psalm 99. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 603. And in the larger print Bibles, 936. Psalm 99 is part of a little group of psalms that focus on God as king. But this psalm also gives us an exposition or an explanation of God's holiness. So with that in mind, let's read Psalm 99. And notice as we read how the psalm is divided up. The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob you have done what is just and right. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called on the Lord and he answered them. He spoke to them from the pillar of cloud. They kept his statutes and the decrees he gave them. Lord, our God, you answered them. You were to Israel a forgiving God, though you punished their misdeeds. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. This is God's word. 
We've seen how the books of Isaiah and Revelation describe God as three times holy, and Psalm 99 is the same. It divides into three sections, and each section ends with the statement, He is holy. You can see that at the end of verse 3, the end of verse 5, and the end of verse 9. God is holy, holy, holy. And here we're given three aspects of his holiness, or three insights into his holiness. He is holy in his supreme majesty and authority. He is holy in his just and righteous rule. He is holy in his personal involvement with his people, this psalm tells us. First, in verses 1 to 3, he is holy in his supreme majesty and authority. Verse 1 says, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion, he is exalted over all the nations. This is maybe the aspect of God's holiness we are most likely to think of when we hear that he's holy. As he's described here, he is above and beyond everything and everyone else. He is separate from everything and everyone else. The way to his presence is guarded by these winged angelic beings called cherubim. They're there in Revelation and Isaiah 2. We've already mentioned those related visions of God's holiness in Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 4. And they bear out this sense of God being awesomely separate and above his creation. Isaiah's vision took place in the temple, and Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and exalted. And in the presence of the high and exalted Lord, Isaiah says the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. In Revelation 4, John's vision, he is invited to come up here to see the Lord on his throne. The throne is above all. And what John sees is accompanied by flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. So God's holiness gives the nations good reason to tremble. It gives the earth good reason to shake. He is awesome in his holiness. Today, at least in this country, we've just about lost all sense of reverence for authority, haven't we? We seem to be more interested in tearing down every authority. And maybe in some cases there are good reasons for that. But here, we're confronted with one authority that can never be torn down. God is not an MP who can be ousted. He's not a statue that can be toppled. He reigns the universe from his high and exalted throne. And even a glimpse of his supreme majesty and authority causes the nations to tremble and the earth to shake. God's holiness means there is a great distance between God and us. He is high above us, and He is high above all of our attempts to replace Him. 
Early on in the book of Genesis, the people decide to make a name for themselves by building a great tower that they think is going to reach to the heavens. But as they carry out their grand plan, we're told in Genesis, the Lord came down to see the tower they were building. They thought they were getting somewhere. They were reaching to the heavens. But in reality, the work they were so proud of was pathetic. The Lord came down to see it. It made no dent in his majesty. It was no rival to his supreme authority, their little tower that they were so proud of. All human claims to grandeur are like that. They are delusions of grandeur. They are nothing beside the Lord who is exalted over all the nations. And so we are on shaky ground if we go along with our society's commitment to being anti-authority. As I said, it might be justified in the case of many human authorities, but there is one authority we are mad to try and overthrow. If we have any sense at all of God's holiness, we will know something of what it is to tremble and shake before his holiness. And if we belong to his people, we will do what verse 3 calls us to do. We will praise him because he is supreme in his majesty and authority. We will praise him because he cannot be toppled from his throne. Or even touched on his throne. We will praise him because he is eternally secure in his supreme majesty and authority. But there is more to God's holiness. He is also holy in his just and righteous rule. He doesn't just rule, he rules well, which is very significant. He rules perfectly well. Verse 4 says, the king is mighty, he loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob, you have done what is just and right. Equity could be translated order. This is about rightness or righteousness. That is what God loves, justice and righteousness. That is what he works to accomplish. And we're told here he has done that in Jacob, meaning in Israel. When you read the Old Testament, I don't know what it is that you might look for as you read, what it is you're on the alert for as you read the Old Testament. But this verse tells us to look at God's dealings with Israel as a demonstration in history of God's just and righteous rule. When the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, the Lord brought justice on their oppressive rulers. What God did in Egypt wasn't only being faithful to the Israelites, it was also a case of putting down Pharaoh, a harsh and unjust oppressor. And when God brought the Israelites much later into Canaan, and defeated the Canaanites in front of the Israelites. Yes, that was God being faithful to his promise to give that land to Abraham's descendants. 
And it was also God bringing just judgment on the Canaanites. For so many generations of their brutality and injustice. And in between Egypt and Canaan, when God met the Israelites on Mount Sinai and gave them his instruction or his law, what God was doing there at Mount Sinai was setting up a community of justice and righteousness. As Israel listened to God's instruction and as they obeyed it, they would be shaped and formed into a people who displayed God's own character. The law was an expression of God's holy character, particularly his justice and righteousness. And as the people lived by that law, they would be a community that was just and righteous like the God who gave them the law. So God's dealings with Israel were a demonstration in history of his just and righteous rule. They were also a, a mini picture of how God rules the universe. Yes, there is oppression in this world, like there was in Egypt before the Exodus. Yes, there are many areas of this world where evil seems to have free reign, seems to go unpunished like it did in Canaan before God brought just judgment there through the Israelites. But as we look at what God did in the Old Testament, we can trust him to bring justice and righteousness to every part of his world. Just like he did in ancient Egypt and ancient Canaan. And today we might pray the same prayer the Israelites prayed, how long, O Lord, will you look on at this evil and injustice? How long, Lord, till you establish your justice and righteousness eternally? We might pray that prayer, but we do not pray it as some kind of forlorn, unlikely hope. When we pray, how long, O Lord, we pray knowing he will do it because it's part of his holiness. And we can look back at his history of doing it in the Old Testament. Those ancient works of justice and righteousness are a mini picture of the complete justice and righteousness he will bring to this whole world in his time. God might do it, not do it on our time scale, but he will do it. The God who is supreme in his majesty and authority is also the God who rules with justice and righteousness. This too is part of his holiness. This is another reason why we exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, as verse 5 calls us to. The third section of Psalm 99, the third holy, is by far the longest. It gets the most attention. And it might surprise us to see the aspect of God's holiness that gets the most attention is this. He is holy in his personal involvement with his people. Now, this is different from sending plagues down to rescue his people from Egypt. 
It's different from giving his people victory in battle over the Canaanites and giving them the law on tablets of stone at Mount Sinai. Those were wonderful instances of his involvement with his people. But here in these verses, we're talking about personal interaction. We're talking about intimate relationship. Look again at verses 6 to 9. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called on the Lord and he answered them. He spoke to them from the pillar of cloud. They kept his statutes and the decrees he gave them. Lord our God, you answered them. You were to Israel a forgiving God, though you punished their misdeeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Notice what's repeated in these verses. It's the fact that his people called on his name and he answered them. You can see that in the first, uh, uh, first at the end of verse 6 and then again in verse 8. Lord our God, you answered them. I think we can see the psalmist's astonishment at that fact. And it is astonishing that such a high and exalted God, a God so concerned with justice and righteousness, would also respond to his people. Verse 6 mentions Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. At various points, they interceded with God on behalf of the people. But this psalm is not suggesting God only listens to a special kind of person. Actually, it's the opposite. Derek Kidner says, By naming the great man of verse 6 as among the priests and among the men of prayer, it refuses to place them in a class apart. We can be in their company. All the Lord's people can call on him. We can call on him with confidence that he will listen and he will respond. Now these verses are not claiming that God's personal involvement with his people is always going to be affirming for the people. Verse 7 shows he does expect his people to keep his statutes and the decrees he gave them. And when they don't, verse 8, yes, he is a forgiving God and also a God who's willing to punish their misdeeds. So God's personal involvement with his people can involve rebuke. It can involve bringing consequences for their disobedience. It is not all about affirmation, but it is about relationship. And as the book of Hebrews tells us in the New Testament, God's willingness to rebuke and correct his people shows the wonderful depth of his relationship with them. It shows that God loves his people as a devoted father. He's willing to discipline his children for their good in order that they might share in his holiness. Hebrews says the kind of children who are not disciplined by their father are unloved, unwanted children. Their father doesn't care enough to correct them. 
God is not like that with his people. He does care. He is a hands-on parent. And so he does rebuke and correct. He also forgives. And it costs him to forgive. In verse 8, the words translated, a forgiving God, are literally a God who carries things. It seems like a strange way to put it, but what it's telling us is when God forgives, the sin that he forgives doesn't magically go away. No, God bears the burden of it himself. He pays the cost of it himself. He carries it. That is the kind of deep investment God has in his relationship with his people. And this too is part of his holiness. Maybe this is even the richest, most wonderful part of his holiness. Certainly, as we've already noticed, of the three he is holy sections in this psalm, it's this final he is holy that gets the most attention of the three. In fact, while verse 3 and verse 5 say simply, he is holy, verse 9 expands the statement to say, the Lord our God is holy. The God of supreme majesty and authority, the God who rules with justice and righteousness, is also the personal God. The God who cares for his people to such an extent that he will bear the burden of their sin. And so Derek Kidner says, with this third, he is holy. The majesty is undiminished, but the last word is now given to intimacy. He is against all our deserving, not ashamed to be called ours. The Lord, our God, is holy. And for this, he is worthy to be exalted and praised. There's one significant detail we haven't mentioned yet in this psalm. It's the fact that each of these three holy statements are centered on a place. They're all centered on the same place. Verse 2 says, great is the Lord in Zion. Verse 5 says, worship at his footstool. Verse 9 says, worship at his holy mountain. All those refer to the same place. Zion is another name for Jerusalem, which is God's holy mountain, where his temple is, referred to in the scripture as his footstool. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the focus of God's holy rule. It was the place where he met with his people. If you wanted to know this three times holy God, you could find him in Jerusalem. But recently, as we've seen in John's gospel, that is no longer the place to find God. We've seen Jesus go to the temple in Jerusalem and clean it out. And in chapter 4 of John's gospel, we will hear him tell the Samaritan woman, Jerusalem has had its day as the place to worship the Father. And the reason Jerusalem has had its day is because the Father has sent his Son. 
Jesus is the place to find God. It is in Jesus that we meet this three times holy God. It was Jesus who carried our sin on the cross. And on the cross bore the cost of it himself. It's through Jesus we experience forgiveness and intimacy with this three times holy God. And it is Jesus who will return to this earth in the future to shake the earth with his power and authority, to establish God's reign of perfect justice and righteousness. So as we hear the call of Psalm 99 to worship this holy God in the full height and depth of his holiness, holiness displayed from the heights of the highest throne in heaven all the way down to the cross. As we worship this holy God, we worship him today no longer as the God of Jerusalem. We worship him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's do that together as we sing only a holy God.
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Amen.